And now, from the mayor's office, above the boathouse, on the east shore of Spoon Lake, it's Garage Logic with Rookie on Production. Chris Reavers, Director of Social Media, John Hyde in the newsroom, and occasionally Kenny from the Krabby Coffee Shop. Here is your Flashlight King, Fireworks Commissioner, and Keeper of Common Sense, your Mayor, Joe Souchere. Fratelloni's Hardware and Garden Stores brings you this best of edition of Garage Logic. It's Reavers here in the GL Podcast Studios, and we had a couple of requests for this one. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I guess, uh, because people wanted to hear the initial reaction of the coronavirus pandemic. And so we had Dr. Mike Osterholm on the show. I believe this was February 4th of 2020, just a few weeks before basically the entire world changed. So here that interview is from February 4th of 2020. And thanks once again for tuning in to the best of Garage Logic. Here's a man who spends hours in hardware stores, sifting through the nuts and bolts of life, Joe Souchere. We're good to go with Dr. Osterholm. Uh, one minor change here, yep. All right, tell me when. He has a my furrowed phone. brow. You're scaring me, Matthew. Phone. Here we go. Yes, we're good to go. Mike? Doc. Oh, boy. Michael. Hey there. How you doing? Hi, Mike. You are Regents Professor McKnight Presidential Endowed Chair in Public Health and Director for Center of Infectious Disease Research and Policy, SIDRAP, at the University of Minnesota. Thank you. Mike, before we start, I know you have a view on this. What, what is, what is, how do you view your role in the world of public health as opposed to a hands-on doctor that mom takes the kids to? Uh, as public health practitioners, we're kind of like the, uh, you might say, the weathermen that uh, work at your local weather station that basically are trying to uh, predict what's going to happen tomorrow, the next day, and the next day based on what we know happened yesterday and years before. And so in our role in public health, uh, we're really there, we, I call the pump pullers. We base uh, what we know on that kind of past and future prediction issue to try to prevent these diseases from occurring. And what I mean by pulling the pump is that that's the famous uh, story about Jon Snow back in the 1860s when many people in London were coming down with cholera long before we understood that bacteria caused the disease. But he was able to demonstrate that the people who were getting sick were those who were primarily using one well that was contaminated, Mm -hmm. and uh, they wouldn't stop using it. So he went literally in the dark of night and pulled the pump handle uh, in such a way that they couldn't use the well for some time, and the outbreak stopped. So, you know, the physician out there is there to see you when you get sick and to take care of you. Our job is to keep you from never having to go to the physician. On we the world stage, on the world stage right now, what concerns you the most, flu or coronavirus? Well, clearly the coronavirus does in the sense that um, this is really unfolding in what we call a pandemic potential, meaning a worldwide epidemic where this disease could show up in many countries. Um, it's being transmitted very much like influenza in the terms of the dynamics. It's, it's very readily moving from person to person. It's crossing boundaries easily. Um, and so that regard, it's, it's a serious challenge. But what makes it really uh, kind of the extra concern 
is that the uh, number of people who require uh, very, very uh, sophisticated medical care and then in many cases dying uh, puts us into kind of a category of its own. Um, right now, the best estimate we have out of China is that if you compare this to a bad flu season, uh, the deaths we're seeing with this virus are 20 to 30-fold that of, of the flu season. So uh, long-term, uh, as this spreads around the world, we could really see almost like a, what we've talked about with influenza pandemics, this new strain of influenza that could occur. Now it's actually a coronavirus that's doing it, uh, but very similar to what we worried about with influenza. The dateline Beijing, uh, I'm reading the uh, death toll has risen to 425 with the number of cases now standing at more than 20,000. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and let me just tell you, these case numbers actually mean very little in a way. Uh, because all of these are just grab samples of the actual population that's infected. To be called a case today, you have to be tested. Mm-hmm. And there's been a very, very limited amount of testing available because the government of China, as well as our own country, are now just trying to basically build or devise these test kits that can be used. And so we have many examples of people who are turned away from hospitals, healthcare facilities, dying at home, even dying on the street. Uh, with this infection for which uh, they can't be called a case because they were never tested. So the guesstimates right now would suggest that just in Wuhan itself, there may be well over 100-plus thousands of cases that are not being tested that um, uh, if they were, the numbers would be dramatically different than we even see now. What would a pandemic mean to Minnesota? Well, first of all, we'd be in the soup like everyone else, and our healthcare facilities uh, could be really uh, stretched to the max. Meaning that um, you know the everyday care of patients today is one that's a challenge because we we have no real excess capacity in healthcare just because of the financing they can't. Mm-hmm. And so you add on even a slight increase in the number of people requiring. Uh, hospital care, and particularly when it's really kind of the severe illness care, the intensive medicine care, it puts tremendous stress on our systems. Um, in terms of healthcare workers, uh, they they will tell you just coming through a regular flu season can be extremely stressful. Then on top of it, um, our hospitals uh, have not had the opportunity, uh, largely for financial reasons, to stockpile protective equipment, masks, the gowns, the gloves, the things you need to care for a patient and protect yourself. And coming off a of flu season, what excess capacity they did have has been largely gnawed down to almost nothing. And uh, today, even with uh, full production, and unfortunately a lot of that production is actually in China, uh, many of the uh, uh, pieces of protective equipment we'd need for healthcare workers are just not going to be available. And so now the challenge is just what we're seeing in China, where their workers are being made to go to work in hospitals with no protective equipment. And, you know, I kind of liken that to walking into a room full of, uh, you know, viral machine guns. And uh, what will happen here? Will, will they go to work? Will people as healthcare workers who will get sick, who will, how, what will happen with that? And so I think these are the things that I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about uh, the issue of supply chains. We live in a global economy today where our own center here is doing a lot of work looking at drug shortages, critical drugs for treating uh, any number of different diseases. And it turns out that for many of these, the drugs are actually produced or the active pharmaceutical ingredient is produced in China. And we're seeing uh, shutdowns now of all these supply chains and manufacturing large areas of China 
today, just this morning, uh, Hyundai announced uh, stopping off production of automobile manufacturing in South Korea because of the inability to get parts from China. Wow. And and so one of the things we're worried about, will we have a perfect storm of a, of a substantial increase in illnesses at the same time our availability to get these drugs is, is minimized even more than it is now, which it's already a serious problem as we speak. Let me read you two paragraphs from a piece I read uh, in this morning's Wall Street Journal. In the absence of vaccine, some public health experts worry that the pathogen might be able to continuously circulate akin to a seasonal virus. Quote, we either stop it now or we never stop it, said Lawrence Gostin, the director of the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law at Georgetown University. What does he mean we either stop it now or we will never stop it? Well, once it becomes uh, seated in the population and established there, unless you have a vaccine, uh, people will be able to and will continue to spread the uh, virus year after year after year, much like seasonal flu. Um, I would take one slight exception with Larry's comments. Uh, I take it you know him. I know him very well. Sure. Um, and uh, is stop it now is too late. This this is you know the cows are already all out of the barn, okay. and they're they're half a mile down the road. And so the idea is, and this is why even our own country's response right now is not based on anything sound on anything sound in terms of public health. Um, you know, unless we're prepared to wall off the rest of the world, um, we will not stop this coming into this country because cases from China have spread this now to many countries around the world. And these countries will have their own outbreaks. They'll have their own increased occurrence of cases, which are, you know, how are we going to screen the entire world coming in out of our country? And again, I come back to supply chains and how many critical products and services. Just think about this one figure. 690,000 Americans are kept alive today with end-stage renal disease because of the drugs and the dialysis uh, opportunity that they have, for which virtually all of this is made offshore from outside the United States. Good Lord. Uh, is the airplane the biggest enemy to public health in this day and age? Well, it surely uh, exacerbates the problem because it moves things around so quickly to so many locations. And so, you know, a, a bug anywhere yesterday could be everywhere tomorrow. And so that's a, a big problem. The other thing, though, is just, you know, when you have uh, almost 8 billion people living cheek and jowl together, particularly in the developing uh, countries, large cities, um, that also really s- facilitates transmission. Think about the half the world's population still does not have toilets. Right. And so that, that when we look at the world of, of hygiene and transmission of infectious agents, it's, it's easy to transmit. Then on top of it, we have still a large animal food supply. In this case, in China, uh, we're quite convinced that the original source of this virus were bats. Uh, it's very close related to a bat virus we see that likely came either from the bat directly to humans or through an intermediary food source, uh, a rodent, a mammal, something that got infected. And this is not new. We've seen this SARS, the severe acute respiratory syndrome in China uh, that started in China 2002 and three also likely had its origin in bats, again, which are basically uh, hunted and then used for food supply. So anytime you handle all these animals, uh, it's remarkable. I mean, some of the most eye-opening moments I've had is spending, for example, a day in the Bangkok market, which was almost a mile and a half by mile and a half large. And there was almost every imaginable animal in the world in there you know, basically crowded in where you could go buy it, and they'd slaughter it there right there for you. 
Uh, they have a palate that uh, I'm not familiar with. <laughs> yes, the, nor me either. Mike, uh, something I've always wondered, has SARS been eradicated or did they just lie dormant? Well, SARS as a virus has not shown back up again. It Basically, once we recognized that the primary reservoir where this was coming from was uh, an animal called palm civet, so a large mammal that was used for food. And uh, once that got out of the uh, food markets, the, the, the market settings of China and the Guangdong province, the pings into humans stopped. Mm-hmm. Then it was our job to continue to follow up on the humans to make sure that they didn't transmit to anyone else. So cases were identified as early as possible, and uh, their contacts followed. Now, it was advantageous to us for SARS, as much of a challenge that it was. Most people did not really become highly infectious till the sixth or seventh day of their illness. And so if you could catch people early enough, you could get them in what we call protective isolation or where the air that they're breathing is not going to come in contact with somebody else's air intake. And that stopped it. This one is a challenge, this coronavirus, because it looks like there's much more transmission earlier in the illness uh, when they may first have their first symptoms. And no one would even know you had a coronavirus infection because either it's very mild or because of the fact uh, you, you know, you're not yet going to be severely ill for a few more days. In your career, where, where do you rate this in terms of your personal concern? Well, it's surely close to the top, if not the top. I mean, I was very involved with HIV work. I actually was in a 12-person meeting at the CDC in the summer of 1981, which turned out to be the very first meeting ever held about what became HIV-AIDS. Uh, but that really unfolded over a several-year period, so it wasn't quite like today. We had the 2009 H1N1 pandemic uh, of influenza that we were very concerned about, but that, too, um, basically did not turn out to be, you know, from a severity standpoint, what we're seeing here. And uh, so this one really is is a concern. The challenge with this one is we don't know what's going to happen for certain over the next three to six weeks. Um, if it's going as I think it might, um, like I said, there's going to be a lot of countries around the world going to be in the same soup that China is right now. Uh, something I've always been curious about when these outbreaks develop, how, how ultimately do they end? How do they cease? Well, uh, first of all, again, you have to go back to which kind of infectious agent it is. Some of them, like influenza, a new virus, actually appears, causes a very severe illness, picture for six to 12 months, and then becomes the seasonal flu strain from there on. Mm -hmm. And so it comes back seasonally. Other ones, like SARS, come and go, uh, which is rare that we see something like that, but they happen. Others are like Ebola, where um, they happen irregularly, but when they do, now we know that they can be big and they can last for months. But then once we shut it all down, we don't have more human-to-human transmission, they end. Um, many infectious agents, particularly antibiotic infectious agents, once they start, they just keep spreading and spreading and spreading. And one day, they just become the common infectious diseases out there, in this case, unfortunately, with high levels of antibiotic resistance, meaning it's very difficult to treat. So each disease is somewhat different in terms of what their future looks like. As you read earlier, this one does have all the makings of being a very severe problem now, mm-hmm. but over the course of the next um, six to 12 months could start to morph more into what we're going to see seasonally like we do influenza. 
Is uh, coronavirus respiratory in nature? Yes, it is uh, respiratory. What's been interesting is most of influenza is a larger uh, part of the upper respiratory tract, you know, the the kind of coughing, hacking, fever chills. This one, uh, the coronavirus has in the past tended to be a lower respiratory, darn deep, deep in your lungs. And because the receptor sites in your lungs at that lower level are also found in the GI tract, that it's not unusual to see some marked diarrhea with these cases. While we've had some examples of that, uh, largely uh, that's been absent, and it looks like there's more upper respiratory involvement, meaning that's why they may be more infectious. So um, at this point, this illness, clearly uh, the primary reason that people do poorly and die is a very, very severe pneumonia, which, uh, of course, means it's it's very difficult to breathe. Uh I will expect that you are probably going to have to face some growing role in this. Is that correct? Well, our center has actually been quite involved right from day one. In fact, uh, uh, we have an incredible news team here that has been literally breaking news on this topic dating back to to mid-December. So um, we're very fortunate uh, with that news team. Uh, that uh, we have been a leader uh, globally in reporting on this. Also, just because of our our role in advising groups like the WHO, the uh, Department of Health and Human Services, including CDC and the FDA and so forth, NIH, we've been quite involved on an a everyday basis in terms of providing advice. Also, part of it was, for, for me, it uh, was a very, you might say, painful deja vu all over again because in my book that I uh, published in 2017, Deadliest Enemies, Our War Against Killer Germs, the chapter on coronaviruses, the actual title was SARS and MERS, A Harbinger of Things to Come. Good Lord. And I literally talked about this kind of a picture. And uh, in the chapter looking at how a large outbreak like this might look, I actually talked about ch- what the Chinese are exactly doing today, shutting down society as we know it, the supply chain interruption, the impact that that would have. And uh, I take no comfort in, you know, having read, written this three years ago, but it's uh, a, a reminder that what is happening. And so we tend to get involved because people at least have some sense we've thought about this. I suppose for us in Minnesota, the usual admonitions apply. Stay healthy, wash your hands, be careful. Huh? And nothing that's, else that's, we can and do. Enjoy, and enjoy life. Yeah, enjoy life. Enjoy life. I would say the one thing that uh, we would be wise to do, it's like that hurricane analogy I used earlier, you know, we're not sure where it's going to hit landfall, mm-hmm. but start taking precautions now, preparing. Mm-hmm. And I think now is the time for every healthcare facility in the state of Minnesota to look at uh, their plans for what happens if they have a major increase in cases like this. How will they provide care? Uh, what will they do to protect their healthcare workers? Uh, how secure are their uh, sources of drugs and protective equipment? Uh, businesses need to think about what would happen today if in a major business uh, you found out at uh, 4 o'clock this afternoon that the individual who left this morning uh, not feeling well went into the hospital and was found to have this coronavirus infection. What would happen in that workplace today? And so what we need to do is think about that. What would happen if somebody who came back from China uh, was infected, uh, was hospitalized, came home after that hospitalization, but not yet clear if they're infectious or not, and their two kids went to your grade, uh, your children's grade school. Mm-hmm. What would happen? So we need to be thinking about those scenarios now so that we have plans, we have answers, and we have action. And that's, that's you know, whether this happens or not, that's not a bad thing to prepare for that. Are you satisfied that that is happening 
significantly in this country. It is not. It's and not. part of it is we are caught in a world of happy talk, saying, don't worry, this is low risk right now. Uh, we're going to take care of it from our, you know, our leading political leaders. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we just have to be honest. You know, the public health community got itself in a jam back in the 2014-15 Ebola outbreak when the CDC kept telling people, we're ready, hospitals are ready for this. And then when that first case came uh, to Dallas County and uh, was hospitalized and two healthcare workers got infected, you know, we lost almost all credibility as a public health community because the public perceived we weren't ready. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we weren't. Mm-hmm. And we should never have said that. And I think today the best thing we can do is tell people what we're doing to get ready, how we can help them in their local communities, not promise that we're going to keep this out like putting some kind of iron curtain around our country. And But if it does come and causes this kind of problem, this is what we're going to do to respond. That's when people will stay with you. That's when they'll trust you. That's when they'll say they're telling me exactly what I need to know, and they can't solve all my problems, but I have faith that they're doing everything they can. Doctor, uh, this is Kenny Olson, Doc. Uh, could you, I'm really worried. Uh, do me a favor and tell us when to run for our lives. That's all I ask you. You know, you know this really it's scares not, me. It's not about running for our lives. You know what it is? It's going to be about how we're going to take care of each other. Right. And that's what's really clear. You know, some of the most painful stories that we're getting out of China right now are individuals who live outside of the Wuhan area, for example, and because of the quarantine, they can't get in any more than people can get out, yet they have an aging parent or parents who are living alone who no one is is stopping to visit and see, and they're both sick and they can't get into the hospital, and these kids can't get home to care for them. Wow. And, and they're sitting literally outside a quarantine begging to go in to what is where most, you know, a lot of the disease is at just to help take care of their aging parents. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we as a country, as a community need to think about how will we respond, you know. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I a long time ago came to the conclusion I don't work anymore really for me. <laughs> right. um, I, I've, I've, I've passed all those years. Okay. You know, to me, it's a legacy issue. What, what am I doing to make it a better world for my kids and grandkids? Right. And my God, during this next few months, I think a lot of us be put to the test of how are we going to respond in terms of what we can do to support our families and our friends, our colleagues. And if this unfolds like China right now, you know, uh, failure is not an option. Panic is not going to help. Just we got we to gotta get through it and help each other. Mike, I appreciate your time, and uh, I thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you. That's right. Dr. Mike Osterholm, uh, and he is the director at the University of Minnesota of the uh, Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy called SIDRAP. He's also a Regents professor. I appreciate his time. We'll be back with Johnny Heights News. At Grunhofer's Old Fashioned Meats in Hugo, they are your go-to destination for everything that you need for your New Year's celebration. Over 130 flavors of brats, bone-in prime rib, boneless prime rib, beef tenderloin, porterhouse, ribeye. They are the place to go for your party celebration for this New Year's. Don't forget about the meatloaf, salmon. They've got you covered at Grunhofer's Old Fashioned Meats. Check out their entire selection online at grunhoffersmeatmarket.com or just simply stop into their store. It's the north end of Hugo on Highway. 61. Howard writes, I have a vehicle with about 90,000 on it and it's beginning to show its age and this week it idled momentarily and mildly rough for the first time ever. My first thought was seafoam. 
So I headed to the local man mall with the orange silo to get some. I found what I needed, proceeded to get in line with my two cans. The line was long, and it just so happened I got in line behind an octogenarian gentleman who had his own bottle. He saw my cans and asked me what I needed them for, which evolved into a 15-minute conversation about all the vehicles he's owned, his personal cylinder journey. He told me he started working on motors with his dad when his dad was a mechanic for Grain Belt, and the whole time I was talking to him, it was just like watching someone who had just entered a time machine and he was reliving key memories, like a, like the one where he got picked up for doing 135 miles per hour. The point of the story is to say that Seafoam isn't just a wonderful product in a world of bad gas. For me, it was an entry ticket into a wonderful conversation with a great living American that I might not have had were it not for seafoam. That's a great story, Howard. Thank you very much. A great story about a great living American. Thanks uh, thanks to you, Howard, and thanks to Seafoam for always being there. Truly a wonderful product. We're joined by the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota, Mike Osterholm. Hi, Mike. Hi there. How you doing? You've always used that baseball analogy. What inning are we in? Uh, probably uh, top of the fourth, I'd say. Somewhere oh. right in there. We've, As you've seen what's happened over the past several weeks, uh, we've got a ways to go yet. And uh, we won't really start seeing, uh, you know, it's getting to the later innings until we uh, see the vaccine uh, really have much more protection in our communities. Mike, uh, I'm going to ask you a question, then we're going to play a little clip from when we had you on on February 4. Well, you you were ahead of the curve, and for some reason so are we in attempting to reach you, and we did. What do you know now about the virus and how it makes people sick that you didn't know back in February? Because here's what you said, February 4, 2020. In your career, where where do you rate this in terms of your personal concern? Well, it's surely close to the top, if not the top. I mean, I was very involved with HIV work. I actually was in a 12-person meeting at the CDC in the summer of 1981, which turned out to be the very first meeting ever held about what became HIV-AIDS. Uh, but that really unfolded over a several-year period, so it wasn't quite like today. We had the 2009 H1N1 pandemic uh, of influenza that we were very concerned about, but that too um, basically did not turn out to be, you know, from a severity standpoint, what we're seeing here. And uh, so this one really is is a concern. The challenge with this one is we don't know what's going to happen for certain over the next three to six weeks. Um, if it's going as I think it might um like I said, there's going to be a lot of countries around the world going to be in the same soup that China is right now. Uh, boy, you called it. What is different? What do you know now that you didn't then? Well, I think, first of all, the virus in of itself is, uh, causes a very complicated uh, set of uh, illness, symptoms, uh, and conditions. Uh, first of all, we... Uh, originally thought that uh, it would cause a, a condition known as ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is a, a very complicated immune response to the host that actually the virus sets up and then the host does the damage to itself. We saw much less of this. We, we also saw that uh, from the standpoint of being able to breathe, the idea that you needed to be intubated, a tube down your throat, 
uh, was really not the first line of response to keeping people's lungs filled with air and oxygen. Um, we also learned that the uh, need for certain very, uh, you know, common drugs to uh, basically suppress your immune system to some degree in terms of how you responded would be very important in keeping from having what we call vasculitis or an inflammation of the vessels of your body, which then would cause people to develop blood clots, which would then cause people to have strokes and heart attacks. And so it was a very complex disease, and it still is, obviously, and one that uh, also has a chronic piece to it that we didn't understand at the time where, in fact, people who are uh, infected with this may have very mild illness initially, but by week four, five, or six, have developed what we call long hauler syndrome, which is a chronic uh, uh, problem that likely is, again, an, an immune response from the host. Your own body was set up to do this by the virus. It's not the virus anymore. And with that, we see very severe chronic fatigue syndrome-like symptoms, a thing called brain fog. So, so clinically, this was a much, much more complicated disease than we realized. As far as the epidemiology or actually the spread of the virus, <clears throat> this hasn't really changed much. I um, you know, have pretty much seen what's happened here in terms of how we as humans respond. It had a lot to do with how bad it is. Look at Asia. They have largely controlled the virus transmission. The United States has not. Europe did control it and then let up uh, this mid to late summer and look what's happened there and so uh you know the fact that we're in a situation right now with 200,000 plus cases being reported every day you know i had said in early august i thought this was going to happen by thanksgiving and it has so um you know i think until we get a vaccine we're going to see these case numbers in the united states because of our unwillingness to to not put ourselves in a transmission uh, uh high risk setting is going to keep spreading, and we're going to see real challenges. Let's talk about the vaccine potential for a moment. What if 40% of the country refuses to take it for whatever reason? Does that mean the people who get vaccinated will be protected from those 40%? Well, first of all, uh, the 40% number, let's just go back and take a look at what... I'm just making that up. I have no idea. Yeah, no, no, but but I think this is an important point, because 40% is a number that actually... Uh, is is very realistic. We have uh, survey data today that says uh, 50% may take it, but in some of the communities of color, uh, black, indigenous, communities of color populations, we see numbers even much, much lower in terms of people will take it. In our uh, work, we've you know really been able to determine that to develop what we call herd immunity, this concept of having enough people vaccinated or have been clinically ill and developed immunity that way, in the community to slow down transmission. Think of it like a big virus reactor, and these are immune rods that you put in to slow down transmission. We need between 50 to 70% of the population to actually be protected. And then only then it just slows it down. It doesn't stop it. So directly to your point, if we don't get into those high levels of 70% or more vaccinated, we'll continue to see lots of transmission in our communities. And that's obviously a real concern in terms of where do we want to be six months from now? Uh, you know, I think we all agree what's happening right now is obviously just a real challenge. Will the virus have the ability to dodge the vaccine? In other words, it's such a complicated uh, uh, virus. You're still learning about it. Might it figure out a way to work around the vaccine? At this point, there's no evidence that that'll happen. Okay. Uh, we know that the virus does change genetically. 
uh, but it's changing in ways that that is is a kind of a, a normal process where it's not a, a big change all of a sudden that means that how our immune system responds to the virus is, is no longer going to be effective. So at this point, there really isn't any evidence at all that we need to worry about uh, not having uh, the vaccines work. A good example of what I'm talking about is Um, You know, when we look at measles vaccine, we haven't changed that vaccine in decades and decades, Mm -hmm. and we still can use it today, the same vaccines we did back then, and they're very effective. Mm -hmm. Should asymptomatic people, uh, are asymptomatic people spreaders, and should they be quarantined? Well, first of all, they're absolutely spreaders. They, we know that the early transmission of the virus in the first days after exposure and before you become clinically ill may be some of the most important times for transmission. The problem with it is we don't know who they are. I mean, you and I wouldn't know. So to say to quarantine them uh, is a difficult situation. Oftentimes you don't know that you're shedding the virus until you become clinically ill. That's one of the challenges we continue to have in trying to recommend to people why you don't want to get together in public settings or in private settings with others, uh, because even though there are six of you all looking normally healthy, uh, one of you may be infected and then transmit to the others, even though you have no signs or symptoms. So this is a huge challenge. And uh, at this point, uh, you, I, I assume virtually everybody is infected out there if you're not part of the pod that I'm in, meaning that we have been very faithful to not having exposure with others outside our small group, family mm-hmm. members, etc. Mm-hmm. If, if you can't assure that, uh, you got a problem. And we are already beginning to see from Thanksgiving uh, a number of outbreaks in family settings where someone did come to the family, get together. Everyone said, well, we know each other here, but one of them was infected unknowingly and has transmitted to other members in the family. What, what I think I'm understanding, and you correct me if I'm wrong, it, it sounds like you're saying that once you're vaccinated, that doesn't mean you're necessarily free of conveying this to someone else, or am I wrong? No, actually, the vaccine status right now, you are protected in almost all instances, and if you are protected, we believe you won't transmit. We still are trying to work on those data. Could you become you know, asymptomatically infected or without signs and symptoms and then still spread the virus, just not getting clinical disease. And at this point, you know, I we don't have the data to say yes or no, but our sense is that you're not infectious at that point. You are protected as well as not being infectious. I think it's an old saw that people will do anything they're asked if they know how long something will last but I continue to believe, I'm imagining you're going to corroborate this, that, you know, when can we go to a concert? When can we have a large gathering? When can we blend freely? Uh, that's an unknown answer, isn't it? It is at, at this point. And you know what? So much of it's going to be about how uh, effective we are in getting people to take the vaccine. If we ended up having the majority of people vaccinated, you know, in the 80 plus percent range, We're going to see life get back to normal or at least a new normal, but more towards normal. Uh, And and that's what we're all looking for. If we see a a much lower percentage of people take up, take the vaccine, we're still going to see outbreaks. We're still going to see people transmitting the virus to others. And uh, that's going to be our challenge. So, you know, this is why, from my perspective, you know, I think it's so important people understand not only by getting the vaccine, you protect yourself from getting infected and having, you know, serious life-threatening illness, 
but also you're helping the community because the more of these immune rods we can put in this virus transmission reaction, the more we're going to slow it down and, and, and virtually eliminate it out of many of our areas. So this is why both the individual good and the collective good are so important in getting the vaccine. Now that you have his ear, the president-elect Biden, uh, if in fact he becomes the president, God only knows what's going on with that situation. What What is the first thing we're not doing now that Biden must insist on that we begin doing January 21st? Well, let me just say at the outset, obviously, I don't speak for the Biden transition team here. I'm just one advisor that uh, is providing information. But I can say with certainty that what has uh, clearly been very clear over the course of the past several weeks is the absolute reliance on science. You know, not partisan politics, not politics at all, uh, but we are going to make decisions going forward based on what's the best science we have. Mm-hmm. And and I think that um, at this point, you know, I am very confident that, you know, while we won't have all the right answers, we will uh, see much more reliance on the things that work, don't work. Uh, you know, there won't be the politicization of issues. And that's really what I think at this point we, we're all looking for. You know, uh, this thing's bad enough, us fighting the virus. We don't need to fight ourselves and the virus. And uh, I'm, I'm very hopeful that, uh, you know, we will be able to provide with logic and understanding why decisions are made as to how they and how they're made. What is your uh, opinion of the Great Barrington Declaration? It's meaningless. It's okay. a combination of pixie dust and anti-science. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think people are walking among us who have pre-existing immunity? And if so, where would that have come from? They don't. Okay. Uh, you know, we, we at this point have people who have no idea that they're immune, who very well could have been in infected with the virus, you know, in the course of the past 11 months. But that immunity, we don't know how effective it is. Uh, We know that with mild illness or even asymptomatic illness, you may have less durability of that protection, meaning it doesn't last as long, it's not as good as, and unfortunately, if you had serious disease and recovered or if you get vaccinated. So at this point, um, uh, yes, there are clearly people out there that don't know that they are, are positive what we call the antibody, the response to having been infected. and uh, But that number is still quite low. Uh, in work that's been just recently made public, looking at random samples of people throughout the United States, uh, in most areas, it was no more than 8 to 10% of the population uh, were in that position of being positive at all. And many of those did know that they had been infected. So you can get a sense that you know, that it, that number is much lower even from that in terms of uh, of how many people were infected. I'm going to ask this for the people around me who have small children. Should schools be open? Well, first of all, let's just take a step back. And I, I find it difficult to talk about schools. Okay. What I mean by that is that there's a big difference between uh, being K through grade four or five and being older. Mm-hmm. Um, just right off the top of the uh, show here, we'll just say older kids, adolescents, and into high school students, transmission there is much like it is in the rest of the community. So we're seeing you know, real challenges there, and they can transmit not only to their fellow students, but also to teachers, uh, staff members, et cetera. So 
that part of the equation we have to look at one way. If you look at younger kids, uh, we see them too getting infected, not necessarily at the same rate, and they have much milder illness and do not appear to transmit nearly as efficiently. So, uh, you know, we're talking talking about how to keep schools open or what to do. I think we 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 have much better chance of having success in doing that, keeping schools open uh, with younger kids. One of the big challenges we're running into is not just the kids, but it's the teachers and staff members. In the community itself, we're seeing so much transmission that teachers are becoming infected, not because of their exposure at school in these grade schools, but because they're just in the community. You know, just two weeks ago, over 970 uh, kind of staff people at the Mayo Clinic system were reported mm-hmm. as being out that day mm-hmm. with with COVID itself. I mean, the, and they were not, most of them acquired at work. It was just being in the community. So, so in order to keep our schools running, we also have to make sure that we have, uh, you know, uh, an adequate number and, and uh, in fact, I would say a critical number of professional staff at the school to keep them running. Even given your work with HIV, is this the most consumed you and people in your profession have been with an illness in your life? You know, this has been tough in the sense that it's a whole new way to work. I mean, you know, I, I am very, very close to the people I work with at SIDRAP. You know, I'm very, very fortunate to work with the most amazing team of people. Mm-hmm. And I've not seen these people since March. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I see them every day on Zoom. You know, I feel like we have this relationship that surely is very important. But, you know, I, missing these people is a hard thing. This is really tough. And uh, it's the same with our families. You know, Joe, this is going to be a tough Christmas Eve for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for 38 consecutive years, I have read the Polar Express on Christmas Eve to my kids when they were young. Mm-hmm. Even when they got to be adults, we kept it up. And now I have five grandchildren. Mm-hmm. And 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 I'm going to have to do it, you know, virtually this year for the first time in 38 years. That's tough. That's really tough. And and that can't be just, you know, put into cases and deaths, all which are really important. And, you know, I'm remind, I remind everyone all the time that, you know, these cases and deaths are, are, are people, they're, they're loved ones. But uh, also at the same time, while that's happening, it's taken a toll on all of us uh, from, from the standpoint of, of missing relationships, the financial uh, challenges that have been presented by this. And so in that regard, this, this one is all in a category by its own. This is, this is a tough one. Um, <clears throat> Doctor, it's Rookie here. Uh, I just have a question about logistics of this uh, whole thing. My mother-in-law is 94. She's in a home. She's got some dementia, so she doesn't really know what's going on. She got it last March or April. She was isolated, and then she beat it. How, yeah. how, how does – I can't get that out of my head that she could beat that thinking that she would be so weak, and how does that happen? Well, this is one of the uh, challenges of understanding this virus. You know, we have had – uh, you know, triathletes who have died from this virus infection, uh, healthy as you can get, young. And we've had uh, uh, older people, such as you just described, who have actually survived. Now, grant you that the rate of, of serious outcomes is much higher in older people. You know, over age 70, up to 20% of the people who get infected die. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I'm just happy for you and for your family that that, uh, you know, she, she did, sounds like she did well. 
but but this is surely not a disease that for those who are older who have underlying health problems, kidney disease, immune uh, uh, problems, etc., um, it, it's really taken a, a big toll. You're right because it, it part of it was my wife dealing with I can't go see mom. So it what took so much mentally out of my my wife not being it's just like you with the Polar Express. That's going to be it's hard because you your your mind you want to be there you want to be supportive and yeah. you just can't be there. You know what? Not only is it a tragedy for the families, but you don't know how many healthcare workers I've talked to who are really suffering for all intents and purposes traumatic stress syndrome. Post-traumatic stress syndrome is an everyday event right now in our intensive care units. And I had a a very uh, seasoned, tough, uh, you know, incredibly capable intensivist, a doctor in intensive care medicine, report to me that he finally lost it and had to literally walk out of the unit when for the fourth time that day, he had to hold his iPad up to a patient's face so that the family could watch that person as they died Mm -hmm. because the family couldn't be there. You know, we don't realize what this is doing to our healthcare workers today. They are, they're experiencing the most horrible conditions themselves and in being brave and, you know, going in there and working every day, 16 hour shift after 16 hour shift. So uh, you're right. This is a really, really tough situation for families and what they have to go through. And it's really tough for our healthcare workers. Doctor, I got a note from uh, Terry Jetalo in Denver, Colorado, who writes, my next door neighbor in Denver is a Chinese doctor at a local hospital in pathology. Her family remains in China, just outside of Wuhan. She tells us that the numbers in China, that the numbers China is reporting are inaccurate. The crematoriums in Wuhan have been running 24 hours a day, seven days a week since February, and haven't stopped. Is this true, and does Dr. Mike have any knowledge of this? Please help us get to the truth. Do you have any knowledge of that? Uh, You know, we have a lot of people on the ground in the media. In fact, um, I, I know people in Wuhan. I talk to them with some frequency, and I can just say with certainty this is not true. Okay. Okay, so, yeah. I mean, we, we would know that. Um, even if the government tried to cover it up, we would know that, and it's just not happening. All right. Are you exhausted? Um, you know, we've got a long ways to go yet, so you don't even have a time to think about You that. don't have time to be exhausted, do you? <laughs> yeah, 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 you know. I, it, to, to, to take the words of the great Satchel Page, one of my heroes in the world, you know, the former Negro Baseball League uh, star, oh, yeah. once said, don't look, don't look back, they might be gaining on you. That's right. So, you know, that's <laughs> the way I look at it. Right, right. Uh, your admonishment is to continue to wear the mask and social distance. In other words, yeah. where, where are well, we can today? I, can, I add, can, I, can I add a friendly amendment to that, Joe? Absolutely. Never social distance. Physical social, distance. Yeah, yeah, physical Socially distance. Socially be close. Socially be close, physically be distant, right, okay? Right, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm unclear why people wear them driving in their car by themselves or out for a walk, but I'm going to refrain from making any judgment about that. Yeah. If that, you go that, for a walk by yourself, if you go for a walk by yourself, do you wear a mask? I don't, no. uh, and I'm separated, isolated from people. I, I walk in parks, et cetera, where I don't get any closer than 10 feet with yeah, people. I agree. Um, yeah. At the same time, I do understand People may feel, uh, you know, somehow they're misunderstanding, thinking that you're not protecting them. 
And I think that's an important consideration. So I do, I do wear it often my way out mm-hmm. there. I always wear it if I'm going to be anywhere near people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, the big thing for me is I don't wear it much because I do everything to stay away from people. This gives you an idea just how my life is like right now. Here we are sitting here in December, and I still have the same tank of gas I poured in late September. Oh, my. <laughs> that wow. tells you kind of what my life's been like. So, Wow. I'll tell you what. Uh, Joe wants you to drain that as soon as possible and yeah, get some new gas you gotta in you got to put it. some sea foam in there or something. <laughs> You're right, Joe. I know that. i got to take care of other things in life. You're right. 100% right. Uh, so basically, to conclude, I know you're, you're, in fact, are you going to move to Washington? No. Okay, good. But to conclude, I would say, I've always said, I feel like I know no more now than I did when we first talked to you, except I have confidence that the medical science knows much more than they did on February 4th. They do. That's absolutely true. Absolutely true. The problem we have right now is that even knowing that is not necessarily helpful when you're at this, what I call the case cliff. We have so many people being hospitalized that we don't have the healthcare workers with the expertise to take care of people. We can maybe find a room for it and even a bed, but that doesn't mean you're going to get the people that have the expertise uh, that you want to have there. Mm-hmm. And so this is why, please, from the public standpoint, you know, don't put yourself in harm's way. You know, this is not just about you. This is what you do to the healthcare system if you get infected, putting healthcare workers at risk. And frankly, we're we're beginning to, uh, in the country for certain, in number of locations, putting general healthcare at risk. If you don't you don't want to have a stroke, you don't want to have a heart attack, you don't want to be injured in an automobile accident right now. This would be a bad time, hospital, right? This our hospitals are overrun right now with COVID, and that's why, please, you know, as I say over and over again, stop swapping air. Mm-hmm. Just stop swapping air, and if we do that, we could have a big impact even before the vaccine gets here. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, at this point, uh, you know, I, I want you guys to make it through, and I'm looking for one heck of a party uh, later next year. Oh, hell we're, we're yes. On all, Joe's all dime. All of us who have been going through this, we're going to get together. Okay? All right. Thank you, sir. Good luck. Yeah, thank you. Bye. All right. Thanks. All right. Thank Bye. you. Thank you. Yeah, where are you taking us? Dr. Plus? Mike Osterholm. Why don't we uh, take a time what out? What a gem. Huh? And I know what will be uh, furnished at that gathering, Harmony Spirits. I would hope so. We are. It's a GL-only deal at maplegrovelockandsafe.com. We're going to get to that in a second. First of all, Liberty Safe, we all know it. It's the best safe on the market, and there are still plenty of Liberty Centurions uh, at Maple Grove Lock and Safe, loaded with accessories, plenty of ammo cams there too. Uh, Liberty's best-selling safe, the Lincoln, it's in store, and Rich is still offering 12 months, same as cash financing. And finally, last year's sale price on all current in-stock inventory. You're not going to find this on the website or advertised anywhere else except GL. Uh, and you can go to maplegrovelockandsafe.com. You can see the inventory, but it's not even listed on his website. So to get these prices, you're going to have to call Rich or better yet, stop in and talk to Rich. Tell him you heard that hooplehead on GL talking about last year's sale prices, and you got it. The address in Maple Grove, 6901 East Fish Lake Road, and, of course, on the web, maplegrovelockandsafe.com. 
Hey, GLers, if you're looking to improve the water quality in your home, then trust my friends at Hofferman Water. They are your local independent water treatment dealer, and they have been serving Minnesotans for nearly 50 years, and they understand the unique problems that Minnesota water brings. They are also an independent and authorized Kinetico dealer, so whether you're looking to soften, filter, or you just want your water to taste better, they will help make your water worry-free. I'm a prime example. I went with the Kinetico system a couple of years ago. I have the S. 650 system inside my home it made an absolute world of difference it improved everything your 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 dishes your your laundry your showers everything inside your home gets better with Kinetico and my friends at Hofferman Water if you already have a water treatment system in your home well they can help you with service and repairs they specialize in Kinetico products but service many other major brands too they can also help with salt delivery filter changes parts repairs and more give them a shout today you can call them at 612-895-2440 for a free water analysis and estimate, or just check them out online at HoffermanWater.com, and please let them know that Garage Logic sent you. This guy wears many hats, just not indoors. Joe Suchere. Joined by Dr. Mike Osterholm from the University of Minnesota, the head of the... Uh, disease prevention and study. Hi, Mike. Hi there. Good afternoon. How are you? Good, thanks. I've gotten more emails from people who heard that you're coming on, and I'm I'm kind of narrowing down the question that seems to be common to most of those emails. Uh, Two-part question. Do people have natural immunity after having had and recovered from COVID? Uh they do, and it varies to a certain extent by how severely ill you were. Mm-hmm. Uh, we now have data showing that the more severely ill you were, actually you have made more antibody uh, and likely high, higher levels than we had uh, if you had a milder illness. And so in this case, uh, yeah, you do. Now, we've also done additional studies, though, and have found that uh, for those who have had previous illnesses, the response you get, while well, it's surely there. It's not as good as if you get the vaccine, too. So that's why we've uh, promoted the use of a uh, dose of vaccine after having had uh, illness and recovered. That was the other question. If you've had it and recovered, do I still need to get the vaccine? Uh, yes. Okay. You, we recommend that at this point because you'll get even a, a, a superior immune protection from having the combination of both. Will uh, more successful vaccinating lead to a uh, herd immunity? Well, the concept of herd immunity, ironically, comes from just the name implies it's an animal science right. term, where if you get enough of an, a group protected, either through natural disease or vaccination, that you can actually put, in a sense, immune rods in that transmission reaction and stop it or at least slow it down. The concept of herd immunity means that it won't go on anymore because there's just not enough susceptible people that are left out there or susceptible animals. In this case, with a respiratory transmitted virus, it's as highly as infectious as is the COVID-19 virus, the SARS-CoV-2. Um, I think the potential to getting herd immunity in most populations is just a pipe dream. Uh, this is highly infectious. If you have even a few people in a given community who are uh, not previously infected, not protected from vaccine, if there's virus in this community, eventually it will find you. 
And uh, so to that extent, um, you know, unless you really have close to 100 percent protection, I think it's uh, it's going to be a real challenge to ever, quote unquote, hit herd immunity. We can surely see a great reduction in transmission, but herd immunity, I think, um, is uh, is a real challenge. Mike, have coronaviruses infected human populations previously? Oh, yes. Uh, in fact, there, there are well-described cold-like viruses that are coronaviruses mm-hmm. that typically occur seasonally. And uh, so that's, that's a pretty common situation. They cause mild illness. They're not at all associated with that family of coronaviruses that cause severe illness. Right. Now, we have had two previous encounters with a coronavirus that were very uh, concerning. Uh, the first one was SARS back in 2003 when we had that time period back then where uh, for, where we saw these cases occur in an outbreak associated with uh, animal contact in markets in, in Guangdong province of China. And that did end up spreading around the world uh, with people traveling as they did. The difference between that virus and we have now is that uh, per, an individual who was infected didn't really become infectious until well into the fourth and fifth day of illness. And once we understood that and realized that was the case, it was an intense effort made to find all the contacts of a case who might have been ill, basically isolate them and and quarantine them in a sense so that they couldn't transmit to others. And we literally shut down SARS and it never returned again once we stopped all the human transmission. Then uh, we saw in 2012, a new coronavirus, a SARS-like virus called MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, mm-hmm. emerge in the Middle East and on the Arabian Peninsula associated with camels, and that then transmitted to humans. Well, unlike SARS in the old days where they went into the markets and took out the animal species that were responsible for transmitting that to people, no one's going to take out uh, you know several million camels on the Arabian Peninsula. And uh, so we've kind of had to live with it where we still get spillover events from camels to humans. Now people are much more aware of it and uh, make sure that when somebody does get get infected with this virus, that they're isolated quickly. And like uh, SARS, they too are not infectious really until several days in. What makes this situation with the virus we're dealing with now, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID, is that you're highly infectious well before you get sick. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, maybe not even ever get sick enough to know that you have uh, this virus infection. And that's where we're seeing so much of the transmission. Well, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Apparently, there's been some controversy about your beliefs on masking, and that's brought about in no small part thanks to me. And I apologize if that was conf- was confusing. You are a believer in mask, as I understand it, but you are a believer in the correct form of mask. Uh, well said. You summarized it well, Joe. That's it. Uh, you know, we, we've early on at our center really put forward the idea that this virus is transmitted by an aerosol. Mm-hmm. Aerosols are those things that float in the air kind of invisibly. Uh, you know, I give people examples. You're in a department store somewhere and you're three aisles away from the perfume section. You still smell it. Okay, that's an aerosol. They float in the air. Probably the best example that we've had very recently, and it's been unfortunately a terrible example, is smoke. Uh, you know, somebody's smoking. You're walking down the street, and you smell smoke all of a sudden, and you realize that person's 20 feet in front of you. That's an aerosol. Or if you're in a room, if you and I were in a small room, the room you're in right now, and somebody was smoking in there, you'd smell it quickly. Right. 
And, and we've noticed it recently because I've had many people who have commented to me about they've had their face cloth covering on, and yet they're outdoors smelling the smoke that we've all had to suffer with over the last recent weeks from the uh, fires up north. And so what that really points out is if you can smell smoke through whatever you're wearing, that these aerosols, these tiny particles, which now everyone does agree, CDC and the WHO have all come on board in the last recent months saying, yep, you're right, aerosols play an important role here. And uh, now that we understand that and people agree, they realize that face cloth coverings only provide a limited amount of protection over time. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, there's some work that has been done by a international renowned group of what we call industrial hygienists, people who really are experts in this area of things moving in the air. And they've, they've determined based on uh, initial CDC data that if you just take the example of someone in a room who is infected and somebody else goes into that smaller room with them, within 15 minutes, that would be enough time to breathe in enough of the virus, meaning it's not instantaneous. You have to get a dose that in 15 minutes you can get an infection. Well, when you add on a face cloth covering, you get about five more minutes. You mm-hmm. get 20 minutes of protection. So it's something. It's, it's, it's still something. If you have a surgical mask on, you get about 30 minutes of total protection, about another 15 beyond doing nothing. But if you start to wear these N95 masks, right, right. something people call them, now you're up to, if even if you don't face fit it, you just put it on, you get two and a half hours. And if it happens a tight face fitting, you get 25 hours of protection. Mike, I so, thought the N95 respirator looked like one of those gadgets you wear when you go into a booth to paint a car. But that's then you know, I did some homework on them. No, they look like regular masks, but they're just better made and tighter fitting. Yeah, and and they are, and they're readily. And, and the a thing a year ago, Joe, is we didn't recommend them to the public because there still is this controversy about is an aerosol really the important route. But second of all, they were in very short supply, and we needed them for our healthcare workers. Right now, we're in great shape. We have a abundant supply. You can get them uh, any number of different industrial uh, websites, etc. cetera, uh, just because they're so often used in industrial purposes. Uh, you can get them at hardware stores or online. They run a little over a buck a piece. So it's not, you're not talking about that. You know, I've, my N95 I've used now for the last month. Mm-hmm. I've had it for a whole month. And so it's also not something you have to throw away right away. And that's what I'm just talking about. Please use that. That will give you a much higher level of protection. And right now, with this Delta virus out there like this, you want as much protection as you can get. Vaccines, number one. But this, if you use an N95, you can also get a lot of additional protection. What do you think the next six months look like for America? Well, one, we're going to survive. Okay. Let's just be clear on that. I think some people, some of but we're going to have a tough go. I mean, I mean, Joe, think about this uh, from just a an emotional standpoint, a logic standpoint. If I told you this, you wouldn't have believed it, you know, months ago. But this past week, if you had had Louisiana and Florida as countries, not states, right? They would have had the highest incidence of COVID in the entire world as countries. Good Lord. Here we are in America with the vaccines we have, with all we have, and we are actually seeing much more transmission they're seeing in the low and middle income countries right now. Mm. And so, and as we're seeing around the country, you know, you see what's happening. These numbers are going up quickly. Uh, the South has been particularly hard hit. Um, now we're starting to see it show up more in some of the Southeastern states. We're seeing it show up in other states around the country, out West Oregon and Washington are starting to pick up. And so, um, you know, will this in fact, 
uh, you know, do what we've seen in other countries where it goes up over four or five weeks and then drops precipitously, or in the U.S., will it roll out a bit longer? Uh, we don't know, but I can tell you the next four or five weeks are going to be really tough. Beyond that, it could go further into the fall, or if in fact, uh, you know, it hopefully will will drop off quickly. But the bottom line message is that this virus is so, so uh, able to be transmitted that it will find people eventually if you're not vaccinated or if you don't have natural infection uh, protection, meaning you've, you've developed immunity from that infection. And I think that's just an important message to get out there. You can't run out the clock right now. This is going to get you. So we're going to see more surges over the course of the upcoming months where it goes up and comes down. And eventually most people will get infected or be vaccinated. And that's we'd like to get them there with vaccination and not have to get infected. What is your opinion of holding a normal state fair? Well, I think the state fair is going to be a challenge. I mean, we're seeing large outbreaks right now associated with uh, gatherings where it's partly outside. We just had one in Provincetown, Massachusetts. There was a very large one in the Netherlands where before that happened, everyone had to be vaccinated or show evidence of having antibody. And those are the only people admitted into the festival. And there's been over a thousand cases that associate with that festival. Um, we're seeing more and more clusters like this out there. So, it, you know, it's going to be a challenge. We'll see what happens with Sturges in the next uh, uh, 14 days. Last year, we had a cluster of cases uh, about Sturges, you know, that happened with Sturges. And uh, we'll see what happens this year. I just have a quick question. It's rookie here, Doc. Uh, the upcoming NFL season, Kirk Cousins does not want to get vaccinated. Uh, these guys are going to be working in very close uh, proximity uh, do you have a prediction about uh, a major outbreak there, or should they just cancel? Well, I, you know, I'm not going to comment on anyone individually. As you may know, I actually am an advisor to the NFL and have worked closely with the group of people that have come up with the plans to, you know, basically have the season as safely as possible for players, staff, and for the fans. And you know, I have to say, I was incredibly impressed last year with how well the NFL did that, the kind of testing program they had in place, and now this year we have vaccine. Uh, clearly, the NFL is pushing the vaccine hard, um, and they should. And as you know, they just put a new policy out that if a team has to uh, postpone a game because of, of infected players, that unless the other team can readily schedule that, then the team that has the, the infection problem has to forfeit the game and pay the other a team a considerable amount of finance, you know, money for the lost revenue. Hmm. Um, you know, this is all part of their efforts. All I can say right now is Mike Zimmer is one of the ideal models for promoting vaccine in a team. Uh, he has been very, very clear on the message. Uh, he understands it and gets it. I, I have nothing but the highest regards for him. And I hope that the Vikings uh, do get fully vaccinated and that they don't have a problem and we have a successful football season and COVID uh, begins to disappear by uh, early winter and we all get to go to the Super Bowl. Mike, I know you're on a tight schedule. I have one final question. Unfortunately, sure. it gets back to masks, which will never be discussed on this show again after today. <laughs> Feel free. Feel free. <laughs> I, don't, I don't always talk to you about anything. You know that. Mike, uh what what would be the wise counsel to the parents of children going back to school if the district recommends that the children must wear masks? You know, we don't have good masks for kids. Let's okay. just be honest. All right. So so, but again, I would use whatever protection I had. So to wear a face cloth covering, 
uh, that gives you some additional protection, wear it. I, I would tell you not not to wear it, but you know we have to be honest and say that in fact it's it's not the ideal. I wish we had in '95 like face protection for kids, but we don't. Can I tell you something interesting quickly about that smoke? I contend that Saturday, July 31st, it'll be a week ago tomorrow, was the worst haze we experienced. And I was out all day in a car uh, running to Hudson, Wisconsin, and up uh, to New Brighton and Shoreview and back home twice. The next day, Mike, there was a grit on the paint of the car. It was oh, it was yeah, microscopic, yeah. but my only conclusion is that had to come from the smoke. It had to come from the smoke, and that's also what was inside your lungs. Yes. Mm. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. It. Uh, I had the same thing. I exactly the same thing. Uh, it. Uh, people don't realize how that can carry like that. Man, and uh, it is it is a real challenge. And if I was wearing a mask that day, which I wasn't, I would have been better served by that N95 respirator. Do you know how many people I had report that they had sore throats the next day? Oh, I bet. After that day, after that day, it was uh, next Sunday, that Sunday, because it was so bad on that Saturday. You were exactly right. I couldn't stop sneezing and my eyes were watering. Right. It was just amazing. Mike, I appreciate your time and best of luck Anytime. to you. And, and thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Take All care. Right. All right, take day. care. Bye. Thank Thanks. you. Bye. Mike Osterholm at the University of Minnesota. And uh, that concludes all mask talk on, uh, on Garage Logic. <laughs> Never again will a mask be brought up, which is fine. And I you think. were right, by the way. I don't think in the time we've been doing this podcast, we received the amount of email for, hey, can you ask Dr. Osterholm? Bl- so well, I, like- I, asked the, I asked the question that was a, a common thread yes. among all emailers, yeah. and that is, if I have had COVID and recovered, should I get a vaccine? And his answer is yes. His, uh, his belief is that this isn't going away until more people take advantage of the vaccines. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to get emails now from listeners who are going to fault me for that. But as I said, this entire staff yeah. is vaccinated, and uh, I have no regrets of getting vaccinated. I, th- I think I agree with the doc when he said the camel is in the room. Didn't no. he say something about camels? No. Camels? Yeah. No, he didn't. Say yeah, he did. No. The camel's in the room. The camel got his nose in the tent? No, it was the Merv one. The, uh, the oh, arid- he was talking about camels. Camels. Yes. 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 I just wanted to make that. He wasn't talking about smoke. The animal camel. Yes. Yeah, not, the cigarette. Cigarette. No, not, no. not the cigarette. No, not the cigarette. Not the cigarette. Got it. GLers, it's Reavers here once again for Chillboys and Chillboys.com. Guess what now is available if you go online to Chillboys.com? Yes, performance long underwear. And I got to tell you, they're pretty dang sweet. I got a pair just a couple of weeks ago, and they are fantastic. So, obviously, winter is coming here. We all know that. But now, in, in addition to the most comfortable underwear that you can ever possibly own, the most comfortable long underwear that you can also own is now available at chillboys.com. Yes, of course, they still have the performance boxers, the bamboo boxers, the boxer briefs. Everything that you want is all still available at chillboys.com, but now including long underwear, performance t-shirts too, by the way. And don't forget forget all of your orders that are over $40 those ship fast and free throughout the entire United States of America when you're thinking about giving gifts this upcoming holiday season think about chillboys and chillboys.com and when you place your order at chillboys.com please don't forget to let them know that you heard about them on the garage logic podcast so when they formed polka dot dairy all the way back in 1956 you, you got to wonder did Wally Pettit and Herb Coke really think 
that their tiny little dairy distribution business would be uh, around all these years later. Uh, and they, there they are, uh, right on Highway 61. And we're going to be talking more about polka dot dairy products in the next year. But this week, uh, we're talking about the most GL-friendly workplace around Polka Dot Dairy. They're looking for truckloaders at their Hastings facility. The shifts are Sunday through Thursday afternoon. Starting salary, are you ready for this? 48000 Now, this is going to be dock work, so you don't need a CDL license. Just a great attitude and the need to work on a great team with a bunch of GLers. There is physical lifting requirements, so if you're a strong man or gal, uh, you're the one that they're looking for. Get yourself a great job. Apply at polkadotdairy.com slash jobs. It's a great company. You make 48 k and you get to work with a bunch of GLers. Polkadotdairy.com slash jobs. Thank you so much for tuning into this Best of Garage Logic today. This is Reavers back in the Garage Logic Podcast Studios, and uh, we will be putting together another show for tomorrow, and then the boys will all be back in studio on the Monday following New Year's Day. So we appreciate you sticking with us uh, throughout this holiday season. We know it's a little bit different than the rest of the year, so thank you so much. And also, please don't forget to go on over to the Garage Logic YouTube page and hit that subscribe button, and also follow us along on all of our social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, don't forget to download that PodMN app for your smart device where you will have the chance to win daily prizes just by listening to Garage Logic. That's how easy it is. Hey, we'll catch you tomorrow on the Garage Logic Podcast. Hey, GLers, it's Reavers here with a couple of questions for you. Are you noticing a decrease in the following? Maybe strength, endurance, enjoyment of life, libido, or maybe it's just a lack of energy. Are you tired of feeling exhausted even after you eat dinner? I've got an answer for you. You need to call my friends at Everest Men's Health. From signs of low testosterone to other deficiencies, they examine every single area important to a man's overall health. And that allows them to develop an easy-to-follow plan that will ensure your success. It does not matter where you fall on the spectrum of men's health. The time is right now to come into Everest Men's Health and take the first steps toward realizing your best health possible. The great thing about Everest is their medical specialists look at the entire picture and they figure out what is causing these changes to you. They start with a full medical evaluation to check testosterone levels, important vitamin levels, blood levels, and overall body composition. And once they identify the deficiencies, such as low T or vitamin deficiencies, they create a personalized lifestyle program that can include testosterone, testosterone replacement, medication management, vitamin and natural supplementation, and exercise prescription and nutritional guidance. Trust me, Everest is fantastic, and they provide a comfortable environment that is not intimidating like other medical clinics. They specialize in men's health, and they can be your doctor for all your health needs, and they will refer you to a specialist if needed. It's a wonderful environment and fantastic people. Go online right now to EverestMensHealth.com, and you can call today to schedule your $50 testosterone test at any one of their three locations in Woodbury, Plymouth, and now in Egan. And please let them know that you heard about them on the Garage Logic podcast.